The sermon text today is from John 8. I would encourage you to grab a pew Bible if you can, as you will be using it uh, during the sermon. The page number is 1062. As you turn there, um, I was reading this this morning and just struck by uh, really a couple things. First is light. The theme of John is light and knowledge and testimony and witness. Um, There has to be witness in order for truth to be revealed. And here Jesus is questioned about that. So we're looking at verses uh, 12 through 30. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. But you do not know where I came from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and my Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, who is your Father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke to the, in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. I told you that I would die, that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he who will die in your, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. You have much to say about I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare, the wor- I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand what he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. So he who sent me is with me, He has not left me alone, for I am always to do the things that are pleasing to him. As he said these things, many believed in him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Morning. My name is Sam. If I haven't met you, I'm an assistant pastor here. Our pastor pastor is Mike, and um, he isn't here today, but we'd love to meet you. If we haven't, um, love to grab a coffee, hear your story. Um, but if we don't, uh, or if you want to just get more connected at Grace and Peace, there's the, these uh, cute little things right in front of you, um, fellowship with us, us cards, 
uh, fill those out, and um, we will get in contact with you to um, take the next steps for fellowship here at Grace and Peace. So, we're in John again today, and I'd love if you can open your Bibles with me, the pew numbers there in your um, liturgy. We also, I want to say, we also have some more of these um, Gospel of John journaling Bibles. Um, They're out there in the narthex in case you already lost yours. Um, If you're visiting, grab one of those. It's our gift to you. Um, But open your Bibles. Um, We are in John 8, 12 through 30. If you are paying attention, um, we skipped John 8, 1 through 11, uh, the story of the woman caught in adultery. And the short explanation of why we're doing that is because in the New Testament, um, and the New Testament you have in front of you, you probably see double brackets in front of John 8, 1 through 11. It's because there's some issues with the Greek manuscripts there. We are going to talk about that uh, next week. Dave Peters and uh, Pastor Mike are going to tag team that one. It'll be great. Uh, Dave has a lot of really good, um, really good reflections on that text. And, uh, so, but we're doing it a little bit out of order here in part because... Uh, the conversation that we just that Josh just read for us is connected to the one that Mike just read last that Mike just preached on last week about um, Jesus being the living water, and uh, so we're at least in the way I interpret this right, we're continuing in that conversation. So we're still, if you'll remember, we're with Jesus and. The context is the Feast of Tabernacles. It's also called the Feast of Booze, but I'm just going to stick with the Feast of Tabernacles because I like the word tabernacle. So we're with Jesus. The Feast of Tabernacles, it's either the last day or more likely it had just ended. So Feast of Tabernacles has just ended. And that's where we find ourselves for the text that Josh just read for us. Um, Judging by how badly most of my football-based illustrations go at this church. Um, A lot of you don't watch football, but maybe you watched the Super Bowl, or maybe you just watched it for the commercials and halftime show. Um, So amidst the ads for mayonnaise and Doritos and that terrible uh, Tubi ad, I don't know if that got anybody in here, if you know what I'm talking about. Um, So amidst all of those ads, there was an ad for Jesus. It's called the He Gets Us campaign. It's this multi-billion, million, I don't know how much money is into it, but it's a lot of money into this campaign, and they put, um, I think, two Super Bowl ads up. He Gets Us campaign. And so it, it, the, the whole purpose of the campaign is to kind of highlight how Jesus relates to you. You know, Jesus, Jesus is this poor, you know, immigrant refugee. Um, he had family strife. Like, there's all these things that they highlight about Jesus' life that, um, is, is hoping to get people to see that Jesus was like, like you. Um, and there have been a lot of thoughts from the church on this campaign, a lot of thoughts from everybody. I'll spare you mine, um, because they don't come from the inspired word of God. But one interesting reflection um, that I read is from a non-Christian woman. It, it, was, a, it was a very thoughtful reflection. Um, and she kind of compared it to... Um, she kind of criticized it because, I'll, I'll just give you the gist, um, you know, she's like, here are the types of people with the, with the he gets us stuff. Here are the types of people that get you in the door with this Jesus that, you know, already looks, looks good to you. He, you know, it's poor immigrant refugee um, with family problems. He's a friend of sinners. Um, so, so they give you that Jesus, but with the, the Jesus that they won't tell you right off the bat 
is a, that they really think that um, this Jesus is also someone that if you don't bow the knee to, you are lost and in darkness. And they kind of they hide that one, which I think sometimes the church might, might be guilty of. Um, and, and I think we live in an age where people expect options, right? You go to the grocery store, you want 10 different kinds of things that you can pick and choose from, not just one. We like, or, or we like options. That, that's kind of how we even divine freedom. We have options for stuff. So she says, they, they don't give you an option. They, they say, you know, I mean, once you're in there deep enough, they'll, they'll tell you, well, this Jesus, he actually says he's Lord, and he says he's the only one. He's the only one. Like Mike said um, in the sermon last week, there is no other stream. Um, theology nerds call that the doctrine of the exclusivity of Christ, that Christ is, he's the only way, truth, and the life. So she said they're not, they're showing you this earthy, relatable Jesus, but not the my way or the highway Jesus. And by the end of the sermon today, I want to show you the beauty of Jesus, who's both. Both of those, the real Jesus, the, the Bible, biblical Jesus, as he presents himself in the gospel. So let's look at the text. This is a human conversation, so it takes all of these rabbit trails and twists and turns that um, your conversations probably do. But Jesus, he's, he's in, in all of the ways that the um, Jewish leaders here are trying to divert Jesus, he's, he's driving at something. And so we're going to look at what, he's, what is he driving at amidst all these detours. So I organized it a bit, this, this kind of detour conversation to help us. Um, so three things that the, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, right? So three things that the light does. The light shines, the light exposes, and the light is lifted, all right? So those three things. So let's, first, the light shines. So Jesus says, Verse 12, I am the light of the world. And he uses light here as an illustration. So if I'm going to take a slightly educated guess here, I don't have any facts or statistics to back this up, so you know, if you argue with me, whatever. But I'd say that light is probably the most used illustration for anything ever. I know that's a big, big statement, and I'm not backing it up at all. But if you look at any major religion or philosophy or worldview, you'll see illustrations of light. From Allah's, it's used as Allah's guidance in Islam, to Buddhists talking about the luminous mind, to Plato's cave with the imagery of, um, you know, there's the fake light in the cave and then the, the true beautiful light out in the realm of the forms, to the age of enlightenment, which triumphed lightening the darkness of superstition and religion with reason and science. It's, a, it's been a universal illustration throughout the history of mankind. But Jesus' statement, I am the light, is a little bit different. And to really get it, that we need to look at the whole of the Bible. So, um, and I know that sounds big, but I promise it's, it, it won't be painful. So what's the meaning of light in the Bible? Well, if you look at Genesis, so we're going right, right to the first page of your Bible. If you look at Genesis, the, in the beginning we see the dark waters of chaos. And God says, let there be light. Yeah. But the confusing, thing, the, the confusing thing there is that that happens, you know, right off the bat, but the sun doesn't get created until day four. So what's the light? There's a couple ways you can think about that. There's a couple ways that um, interpreters of the Bible have thought about that. But I, th I think if you look at the, the, the use of light throughout the whole of the Torah and the whole of the Bible, I think that'd point to the answer that God was the light 
in the beginning. Then later in Exodus, so of Genesis, then later in Exodus, after God freed his people from Egypt, he led his people through the dark desert at night with a bright pillar of fire. After Exodus, then we see Leviticus chapter 23. Um, God tells his people to celebrate a bunch of feasts, and one of them, right at the end of Leviticus 23, is the Feast of Tabernacles. That's what Jesus had just been celebrating that week. That's what everybody was in Jerusalem for, the the Feast of Tabernacles. So um, he describes what this festival should look like at the very end of Leviticus 23. And then the, the next verse, the very next verse in Leviticus 24 starts to talk about the lampstand that was in the temple. There was a lampstand, which you probably know as a menorah, in the tabernacle. And then later in the temple. It was a set, you know, that seven lamp, you know what I'm talking about, lampstand. And that was symbolic of God's Shekinah glory, his presence, his dwelling amidst the people. God was there. So there's this connection between, in Leviticus 24, 23 and 24, between the tabernacle and the light as God's presence with them. And so at the Feast of Tabernacles, that was just celebrated. So it's either... Last day or just probably just celebrated. So they just had this week-long celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles was filled with light. So the Mishnah describes, that's the, um, the, the Jewish text, that describes the scene that would have just taken place the week before our passage. So during the night, during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would burn these huge lamps in the temple, specifically in the court of women, the part of the temple set aside for women, and I'll um, tell you why that's important later. Let me quote from the Mishnah of how this looked. Men of piety and good works used to dance before the oil lamps with burning torches in their hands, singing songs of praises. Meanwhile, countless Levites played on harps, lyres, cymbals, and trumpets, and instruments of music, and they would stay up all night doing this, celebrating the very presence of God among them. It also says that light pierced every single courtyard in Jerusalem. And we're in, you know, St. Louis, we have light pollution everywhere, right? That's not normal, right? In the feast of, during the time that Jesus would have been celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, that light was just filling the city. So at this, this Feast of Tabernacles that was just celebrated, they lit the city up from the temple, they partied all night. Sounds kind of awesome. If you look at verse 20, John says, these words he spoke in the treasury, as he taught in the temple. So the treasury was either located either in the court of women or just right next to it. So here's the picture. They just had this week-long celebration where they, had the, they lit the city up. They were partying all night, dancing before the Lord. And the week-long Feast of Tabernacles, you know, the whole week. And then, maybe just the day before, the lights went out. And Jesus stands in this place where maybe these huge... Lamps were within spitting distance, or within, at least within sight. And he says, I am the light of the world. The light you celebrate, the pillar your ancestors followed, the Shekinah glory represented by the lampstand in both the tabernacle and the temple, that's me. In verse 24, we see Jesus saying, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. The he there is kind of just to make the sentence make sense. But in the original, it's I am. And that's why they ask him in verse 25. They even think this is a weird statement. So they say, well, who are you? Who are you? 
I am he, you are who? If you jump back to Exodus with me for a second, God had just appeared to Moses in the burning bush. So, right, again, the presence of God in this bright thing um, that doesn't burn up, showing the presence of God. And God tells Moses, go get my people out of Egypt. And then let me read from Exodus 3. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, which has a lot of semantic connection in the Hebrew to I am, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And then, I know this is jumping a lot of places, but in the Greek version of what I just read, which is what the people um, and the Jews in Jesus' day would have read, they translated that as ego eimi, which is um, I am. Unless you believe that I am, it's the same language that Jesus used, you will die in your sin. Now, some people reading the Bible, you know, we can see this in I am statements like I am hungry, I am going to get a sandwich. And it's not everywhere, right? But especially in this statement, where, which obviously even confuses the people he's talking to, Jesus is talking about, um, he's, he's connecting himself with that statement in Exodus. And if there's any doubt about that, Jesus keeps ramping this up until at the end of con- the conversation in verse 58, which I think we'll talk about in a couple weeks, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Can't say it much clearer than that, can you? So Jesus is connecting himself to Yahweh. I am Yahweh. The Jewish leaders knew it, and then after he said that, they tried to stone him. So like I said, a lot of religions and philosophies and worldviews, they all talk about light. But they come and they say, I'm a moon. I reflect the light. It's over there. The truth is over there. Reality's over there. Prophets like Muhammad, there's the light. Allah, I'm the moon. Philosophers like Plato, the true light is over there in the realm of the forms, forms and I, I, I reflect the light of the, that reality. I'm a moon. Secular worldviews, like scientism, as C.S. Lewis calls it, which is you know, very popular today, the idea that science can answer every single um, big worldview question that we have about life, like why are we here, who are we? They say, really, I'm a moon. I'm just reflecting the light of the knowledge that we're finding via the Um, scientific process. I'm a moon. I'm a moon. I'm a moon. I'm a moon. And Jesus steps in and he says, I'm the sun. I am the light. I don't reflect the light that's somewhere else. I am the light of the world. So Jesus, in connection with the light in the beginning, the light in the pillar, the light in the tabernacle, in the temple, the light of the Feast of Tabernacles, is saying, you must believe that I am if you'll notice um, that, one thing that one thing that connects this whole passage that Jesus keeps returning to is his relationship to the Father. And that's why he says, even if I do bear witness about myself, I know I came from the Father in heaven and I'm going to the Father in heaven because I and the Father are one. Verse 29, he says, he's with me. He hasn't left me before Abraham, before Adam, I am. That's what he stakes his claim in, his relationship to the Father. And that's why he says in verse 19, if you knew me, You'd know my father. The son of the father in the bond of the Holy Spirit. He's a person of the triune Yahweh that we see introducing himself in the Old Testament. The son of the father in the bond of the spirit. 
He was the light in the beginning, the pillar, the bush. Hey, that's me. I'm the light of the world. See, in Hebrews 1.3, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is the very light of God. So the clear application of that is to believe. Like he says in verse 12, follow. Believe me, follow. Walk in the light after the Lord Jesus. Believe that he is who he says he is, that he is the Lord, he is the light, the only way to salvation. Going back to that kind of, um, that, that he gets us reaction from that woman I was talking about at the beginning. And all the Christians present this, um, you know, they present this Jesus that's relatable to everybody and then it's this Jesus that's Lord and, you know, he's exclusive, he's the only one. If you went to a TED Talk, right, where a guy said, I'm the light of the world and the eternal I am, you wouldn't leave thinking this guy is a good teacher. That was, that was great. Learned a lot from that TED Talk. That's why C.S. Lewis said, Jesus doesn't give us that option. He doesn't give us the option to just say, oh, well, yeah, he's a, he's a relatable guy, you know? I could kind of get with that. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. He's the light of the world. So that was the first thing. Jesus is the light shining the presence of God who is calling us to believe and follow. That was the first thing. The other two will be much shorter than that one and they kind of mesh together. But second one, second thing the light does, the light exposes. So the first was light shines. Second one, the light exposes. So look, at, look with me at uh, verse 15 and 16. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And the wording here can kind of get confusing because, you know, it looks like Jesus is saying he doesn't judge in verse 16, or sorry, in verse 15. But then, if you look later in verse 26, it says he has much to judge. So which is it? Does he judge or does he not judge? And the answer is yes. Because in verse 16, um, Jesus says, According, here's what verse 16 is basically saying. According to human standards, you're a judge. I'm not a judge. I don't judge according to human standards. Because then in um, verse 16, he says, I judge based on what? My rela- Again, like we talked about, I judge based on my relationship to the Father. My judgments are those of the I am, the light of the world who comes in and exposes people's hearts. So all these people, Jesus and is in conversation here are Jews. They were born into being God's covenant people. They were circumcised. They were raised according to the law. But many of them, and especially in the group of Pharisees and other Jewish leaders, um, to put how Paul did in Romans, they were circumcised of flesh, but they weren't circumcised of heart. They didn't have heart-level worship and love of the Lord So when Jesus came, the ones who did love God and took the covenant by the heart, they were the ones that Jesus will say in a couple chapters, I'm the shepherd, I'm the good shepherd, the sheep hear my voice. But the ones that aren't circumcised of heart, who weren't truly worshipers of God, if they don't repent and believe that Jesus is the light, like Jesus says here, they will die in their sin, meaning their unbelief. When he says sin, a lot of times in the singular, that means unbelief. So Jesus came as the light of the presence of God, exposing those who actually knew God and the ones who didn't. 
Which is what Jesus is saying in verse 19. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Know the father, know the son. Know the son, know the father. So this claim of Jesus as the light of the presence of God that exposes um, our sin and unbelief. How do we apply that? Um, Application is the hardest part, at least for me, of sermon prep. It's really hard to think about, okay, what do we actually do with this? Um, It's the part where I'm most likely to say something dumb. But thankfully, John himself, the guy who wrote this gospel, also wrote a letter. And in the letter, he applies it himself. You kind of get this feeling that John is transfixed by this idea of Jesus as the light. In 1 John 1, I'm going to read this. from. This is from John's epistle, his um, uh, letter, 1 John 1. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So that's the message. He got that from Jesus in our passage. What's the application? If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So if God is light, following him, according to John... Applying what we just heard from Jesus means we don't walk in the darkness of our sins. Sin is kind of like mold. It grows best in the dark. I actually looked that up just to verify that on moldremediation.com. Just so I could have an illustration from moldremediation.com. Mold grows best in the dark. If it's in the dark, it'll just keep growing. Our house... Um, was built when Grover Cleveland was the president. So it's got all these old quirks and, you know, everything's going wrong with it, right? Um, And one that's really bad sometimes is water leaking. Um, So in our mudroom, in the back to get into our house, the outside is brick, but the inside is, I don't even know what it's called. It's this, like, kind of light, woody material. And the wall leaks and it seeps out some of the wall and, you know, we get water every... You know, every time it rains really hard in there. Um, and so there's this space, a little bit of space between the brick and the, and the, you know, woody stuff or whatever it is. And I'll be honest, I do not want to look behind that wall. I don't want to see what's growing. I'm, I, I'm pretty sure something's growing in there. Have no idea. Um, but I don't want to look. It's not a part of our heating or cooling system. We just have to walk there for like 2.7 seconds getting out the back door, um, and I'm, I'm good with that walk, right? Um, and that's not an illustration. Like, I really don't. I'm not, I'm not dealing with that. I'm not, I'm not going to look at it today. And we can laugh at that, right? But a lot of times, that's, that's what a lot of Christians live their lives like. I know there's, I know there's some stuff there, and I just want to walk right by it. Maybe I'll confess it to God. Maybe I'll, you know, just keep walking. I don't, I don't know. But I'm, good. I'm, I'm not going to pull back the wall and look at the mold and expose it to the light. I think James 5.16 helps us to interpret our, that, that, that passage from um, John where he's applying Jesus as the light. Um, James 5.16 says it's not enough just to confess to God. We should also confess our sins to our brother, sister, in Christ. says, confess your sins to one another. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has an amazing 
um, explanation of why that is in Life Together. I'm not going to read that, but I recommend that to you. Um, but the only thing I want to say here is sin loves the darkness. Sin grows in the darkness. And I heard one pastor say, you don't fight the devil in the dark. It's home field advantage for him. We need to take, we need to drag our addictions and our sins and all that mess and mold into the light of Christ so it can die. Mold dies in the light. In confession to trusted brothers and sisters, we experience the light of the world, Jesus, through our brothers and sisters in confession. And I know there's a lot of, there's probably at least a few people in here that got a little pit in their gut when I said that. But we need to be doing that, brothers and sisters. You need to have a place, people, where you can be vulnerable, regularly confessing your sins to one another. And as a side note, I would love for us as a church to have a culture where our small groups and our prayer groups are places that are so shaped and cultivated by God's mercy in the gospel that somebody can come in and they can vomit all of the nastiest, messiest, darkest parts of their heart and the response of the group isn't flinching or clutching pearls or even awkward silence, but instead the response is an encouragement in the gospel. The response is going to God together and praying and saying, God, he needs help, she needs help. She's a mess, I'm a mess. We're your children and we need you. She needs you. Help us to walk in the light together. And when we do that, when you drag your sins into the light, in confession, to an actual human being who believes the gospel and can remind you of it, that's how sin dies. Even the sins that you don't think you'll ever be rid of. And that's how revival happens. All right, so we've talked about how Jesus is the light of the world that shines the presence of God on us and exposes unbelief and sin. But there's a, there's a problem here. Because being directly exposed to the light of the sun can kill you, which is pretty obvious. I mean, we, we had the, um, you remember the eclipse a few years ago? You know, sun, sun went out and there's all the glasses and stuff. Well, some people didn't wear the glasses, and so there's people walking about, around with burnt retinas because they looked at the sun. It can be dangerous to be exposed to the sun. But light of, the, the lack of light can also kill us. Me and Kuiper, um, we did a, um, he's been into science experiments, so we did a volcano experiment, and we were, um, so we got into volcanoes, and then we started watching volcano documentaries, and it turns out that um, volcanoes are deadly, um, not just because of the direct hit, that's, that's not the, the biggest um, part of what makes volcanoes dangerous. The biggest danger of volcanoes is when it blots out the sun, when there is an ash veil, and it kills the crops, and eventually it, it kills people. If the earth uh, maybe you've heard this before. There's some people that have used these kind of facts about how delicate life is that we're here on this, you know, spinning earth in the middle of the galaxy and how that points to God. So maybe you've heard this before. But if the earth was even a teensy bit closer to the sun, we die. And if the earth was a teensy bit farther away from the sun, we also die. And that's the same with the light of God's presence. So here Jesus says, follow me, come to the light of my presence or you'll die in your sin. 
So if we don't have the light, we die. And then Moses, close to the passage that we read today, um, he's with God and he tells God, show me your glory, God. And God says, you are a fallen human person. And if I showed you all of my light, all of my radiant glory, you would die. So I can only show you part. And even that part that God showed him left Moses' face radiant. When he walked down to the people, he had to wear a veil. So what do we need? We need a light mediator. And that's what Jesus is. Look at verse 27. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. So Jesus the light of the world is lifted up. And this is kind of like a very Johnny kind of thing to do because he's um, using a word or a phrase with two meanings. Because the, the obvious meaning is lifted up. Jesus is lifted up on the cross where Jesus takes the, the wrath for our sins, the wrath-absorbing crucifixion where the light of the world drinks up your darkness. And that's the only way you can be exposed to the light. So he's lifted up on the cross, and he drinks your darkness so you can be exposed to the light without dying. But um, it also, being lifted up, also means exalted. That, you know, Jesus says, that will also be my victory over sin and death. My victory over the darkness, and I will rise again and ascend to heaven and ultimately be glorified in that. So at the same time, they're lifting Jesus up on the cross, they're also in a way, glorifying him because that's his victory. And if you believe, you will have the light, the life that the light gives. Going back to verse 12. If you walk in the light, you will have life. And so Jesus says to them, if you believe now, if you believe and follow me now, you'll have life. But you're going to see my light eventually. You're going you're to see me glorified Eventually, every knee will bow. Going back to the uh, reaction to he gets us um, that the woman gave. uh, You know, she said, they'll get you in the door with relatable Jesus and then it's all about come to the light or die, right? But I think what we've heard this morning is you need both. You need both. You'll die without the light because... But because Jesus did come as this relatable person, Jesus does get us, right? Read that in Hebrews. He's a high priest with all our weakness. He's tempted as we are, yet without sin. But he gets us. But we also need the Jesus who is the light of the world, who is the radiance of the glory of God in a way that you can feel and embrace. Jesus is the light of God that you can feel and embrace. Let me close with this. Because we, we started in Genesis, right? We walked through Exodus and Leviticus and the Feast of Tabernacles and then Jesus, I'm the light of the world. We moved through the Bible and landed on Jesus. Jesus is the lamp of God, the light of the world. And we have our, our guy John here who's writing this gospel and is transfixed with this idea of Jesus as the light and writes about it in his letter. And then toward the end of his life, he was exiled for his witness to Jesus. And God gave him a vision of how everything would turn out in the end. In Revelation, 
And he shows him this vision of a city coming down from heaven. The new Jerusalem. The new beginning, new earth. And so John describes the city. And he's writing for maybe the last time about the light of God. And in Revelation 21, we actually just studied this in our youth Bible study last week. Revelation 21, he's describing the city and he says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city had no need for a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Sounds a little bit like the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, doesn't it? People in the city of God dancing and singing the night, of, night away in the light of God's glory, which is the basis of our passage. I am the light of the world. Everything ends, or you could say begins, with Jesus, the Lamb of God, as the lamp of God, lighting the whole city up. The city doesn't need a temple because the whole thing, which has the same dimensions as the most holy place um, of, of the temple in the Old Testament, the whole thing is the most holy place where God dwelled most intimately. That's the whole city. And it was all lit up by the lamp of God, Jesus. Now, we still live in a place of darkness. We still live in a place that's ruled by sin and brokenness and death, and you experience that every day. But that reality in the book of Revelation, we can live into that right now, church. I mean, Jesus says in verse 12, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You have the light of God shining on you. And so let's behold the lamp together. And because of that, like the Israels dancing and singing the night away and the light of God, let's bask in it together. Bask in it. Enjoy it. I love that word, bask. I actually looked it up, and, and here's a definition. Lie exposed to warmth and light, typically from the sun, for relaxation and pleasure. Bask in it. Bask in his light. There's beauty, and there's joy, and there's freedom in that. Will there be darkness in our lives? Yeah, there is. And I'm not saying to ignore that. I'm not saying to just brush it away. I'm not saying to act like we're in this new Jerusalem right now. Or that we should be positive all the time or we should put on a happy face. The night is dark. We're surrounded by darkness. Many times we're deeply wounded by it. But Jesus is the light of the world. So let's believe. Let's expose our sins to the light. And together let's behold the lamp of God and be marked by it. Be marked by in the midst of the night, in the midst of the darkness... Let's be marked by a joy-filled basking in the light of God's presence and purity and glory and goodness together. There's a happiness, there's a joy, there's even a kind of partying that comes with that. Let's behold it and let's bask in it together. Let's pray. God, many times we do like to, um, even though you call us children of the light, we like to act like orphans of the darkness, but we're not. And so help us to walk in your light. Help us to drag our sins, the ones we don't think we can get rid of, the ones we may not even think we want to get rid of, into the light to our brothers and sisters and make us a place, make us a 
uh, grace and peace, a little mini city on a hill here in St. Louis, God, where sins come to die, where people believe, where we are marked by the joy that comes by basking in the light of your presence. It's in your name we pray. Amen.